0: You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland.
1: And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States.
0: In this podcast, we'll explore gender from a psychological depth perspective.
1: We're curious about the concept of gender and how it is unfolding in the wider culture.
0: Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi,
1: Stella. How are you? Hi, Sasha. I'm good. Looking forward to this episode. Yes. So we are um, going to try and give an overview of the treatments that have been used for gender issues uh, over the last um, half a century.
0: Yeah. And um, even further, back to the 50s, 60s, maybe, mm-hmm. I I think it's complicated and there's been a lot of theories and a lot of it's been always kind of an outlier, I suppose, in the in this world as far as the numbers were small. And so there was a few experts in the field and whatever their theories were seemed to carry the day Mm -hmm. in the era. And the more we studied it, I think the more shocked we were as we studied it. Would that be right?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, we're at an interesting time in history. We happen to be recording this podcast in December of 2020. And there's been a lot more public attention to the types of treatments used in recent times. And it gives us an opportunity to look back and really scrutinize and examine the trajectory that brought us here and whether these treatments have ever had really really solid foundations and if they've ever been truly justified because now we have way more patients undergoing these interventions and so there's much more scrutiny on the theory and the rationale behind them so shall we start uh with a little bit of a history lesson stella I think so. In
0: my in my kind of view, the 19th century and the early 20th century it was repressive for an awful lot of different groups and an awful lot of different groups really did not thrive and having gender dysphoria was definitely a group that did not thrive and they were very much pathologized, they were left in the outskirts. People definitely transist. what's the word? They they did they did transition on some level, but generally quietly. And mm-hmm. the, I, I think the first, the first actual operation, was that
1: 1931? 1931, that's right. And do you know much about it? I think it was in Germany. It was in Germany. Um, I don't know too much about that surgery. It was hard to find information, but I do know that in 1952... Christine Jorgensen, formerly George Jorgensen, was a much more widely known patient who was male-to-female transsexual and uh, was actually seen as a pretty glamorous figure in in the public eye. And so I think this is when, um, at the time, what was termed transsexualism really became something uh, with a little more um, public exposure, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't. I don't think it was it was very well known at all until mm-hmm. maybe the sixties and seventies. It started. Now there was always in history, like you go right back, and in the nineteenth century, there was a famous Irish woman who became a doctor in England, and she lived uh, as as a man, even though she wasn't. And mm. so there are some famous um, people, and do we know whether they they maybe some of them maybe. Um, transitioned because they wanted to live in a man's world like George Eliot, let's say the writer, you know, she wrote under a male pseudonym. Some of them actually seemed to want to live without a doubt as the opposite gender or mm-hmm. sex, whichever you prefer. But mm-hmm. by the time the sixties came in and the likes of April, Ashley was a very famous figure, a very beautiful um, trans woman who transitioned in, in the sixties, went to Morocco, I think in 1972 And actually had, uh, you know, a genital surgery and was very successful. And she was very much welcomed, I think, by the the British. She was outed and in a a very nasty way by the tabloids because she was a famous model. So it was very, Mm -hmm. but actually people loved her. And uh, she she lived a very successful um, life as a trans woman, as a model. And it brings to mind, remember the famous travel writer who only died quite recently, Jan Morris. There's was another mm. trans woman and mm. she originally wrote uh, when she was a man and then she continued to write as a travel writer mm. as a woman and lived a very successful life. So that's kind of the 60s and 70s. Now, the theories behind it, the mm. theories behind the whole what is it that makes some people want to live the, in the opposite sex, they seem fairly wild, when you mm-hmm. actually, imagine, like, who's, who are these people who are coming up with the theories? And that's where I found, oh, my God, I, I had yeah. no idea it was based on such flimsy theories and erratic theories.
1: Yeah. What were you thinking? Well, I mean, you, you've kind of brought up the public perception of of maybe well-known transgender individuals. But I think you're right that behind the scenes, when it comes to, Um, the the medical and psychological theories behind transition, they've always been very controversial. And I'm thinking about, for example, um, Harry Benjamin, who was an an endocrinologist, and he was the first person to say that uh, the desire to be the other sex is a completely unique kind of illness that is independent from Uh, the femininity or masculinity associated with you know sexual orientation and he saw this as an unexplored field in medicine and so in the 60s he started to really become interested in this and at the time he was really opposed by a lot of the psychotherapists and more of the psychologically minded uh schools of thought which is interesting because that's kind of what's playing playing out right now in the year 2020 but you know um psychiatrists at the time also had some pathologizing perspectives on why somebody would struggle with their gender. I mean, I uh looking back from me, I saw a lot of very homophobic language, sexist language and theories that um you know, any boy, for example, who has feminine tendencies or feminine interests is somehow um you know, defective. And oftentimes there were all kinds of theories to blame the mom for her behavior and, and just kind of d- different reasons given why a young man would be quite feminine. And they were pretty pathologizing.
0: Yeah, I I, I noticed that. And certainly a very dark attitude to the mothers is quite kind of a uh, very much a theme of the 50s, 60s, 70s view of trans genderism but also I kind of think people uh, were very fixated on gender roles so the boys who were very feminine were were definitely viewed quite darkly by their mm-hmm. parents who brought them to the clinics by the, the clinicians who worked with these and it's really noticeable that it's boys, boys and more boys and you think and I can't help thinking yeah girls those days if they had been uh, you know tomboys or if they'd been more intense as tomboys and quite um, in, intense about wanting to be a boy, it would have been smiled upon. They would have been waved along. Yeah, you're fine. But a boy waving his fairy wand and wanting to wear a dress would have been looked very darkly upon in the 50s and 60s. And that emanates in the writing. And it's quite noticeable to me that like Harry Benjamin, who really is the centre I would argue of of the movement um in the 60s and 70s and stuff um he's an endocrinologist and it's very interesting that he was very interested in what can my profession do with mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. freud freud as i said in another episode viewed him as a latent homosexual and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you you do wonder that he just seemed to want to test his abilities his own professional abilities. Yeah. and uh, You do feel that some people are very much drawn to what can I do? What's the limits of my, my profession? How far can I go? Mm -hmm. And He wanted to transition. uh, Well, the, the mother came to him with a child and between the mother and himself, they decided, yeah, let's, let's bring about the transition of this child. And we never knew what came of that child. There is no follow up. To be transitioned. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm thinking that to go back to your point about boys versus girls, I'm not so sure that a girl would be celebrated for her tomboyishness. But I do think people have a much stronger and perhaps earlier visceral reaction to quite feminine boys than they do to girls who maybe tend towards masculinity. And and another thing about Harry Benjamin is that for no apparent reason, he just continued to insist there's no psychological way to help an individual struggling with their gender identity. And he had no real foundation for this. First of all, as you've pointed out, he was an endocrinologist and not a psychologist, not a theorist, not a therapist. And that insistence has really carried itself down the ages. And I hear it even today in the affirmation model, which we'll talk about later. But there's there's a very kind of curious insistence from a lot of the medical interventionists that you just can't address this psychologically. So I want to talk about um, John Money as well. Um, He was another endocrinologist who specialized in intersex individuals. So these are individuals who were born with...
0: I think John Money is a psychologist, but yeah, he was
1: certainly specialising in... Oh, sorry, yes, you're right, you're right. Psychologist. But he he worked with intersex people.
0: Uh, He was an extraordinarily unusual person and has, Mm -hmm. I would argue, quite a dark history and a frightening history.
1: Do you want to explore it? Sure. I mean, I guess his his foundational concept is that and perhaps this is due to the fact that he worked with intersex individuals was that gender identity and gender roles are completely independent of biological sex now there might be chunks of that that i agree with but he you know spent his career kind of advising families and with children in his care on which gender roles to raise them in. And he was um, consulted about a case where there were a family with twin boys, and one of the twin boys named uh, David had a botched circumcision when he was seven months old as a baby. And the, they discovered that the penis would not be able to function and would not grow in a, in a healthy way. So, under uh, john money's advisement when the baby was 22 months old the parents started to raise this baby as a girl and the the male child david underwent a surgery to remove his testes and create a kind of pseudo vulva surgically and david was then renamed brenda and raised as a girl And in the process of learning more about this case, I became aware that John Money uh, would do therapy sessions with the twins. And there are even some um, reports that he asked them to engage in kind of bizarre um, sexual reenactment behaviors and he called it childhood sexual rehearsal play. So whether these accusations are true or not, what's what's obvious is that this was a very bold move to make such an advisement to parents of a baby and the outcome of this story really didn't turn out well.
0: Yeah from the age of nine or so and it's very obvious why it would be nine or so David Raymer started he wasn't happy and he started to kind of What's the opposite of thrive? He started to wilt really psychologically. Mm. And by the time he was 14 or so, he wasn't in school anymore. He uh, was told that uh, about this surgery um, in and around I think he was 11 or 12.: he, he was
1: 13, 14, I think when he was told. because mm-hmm. he it, was suicidal, and so they yeah. decided to talk to him about it.
0: Yeah. And it, it was a mess. It was a complete and utter mess. It was an experiment on a child that did not go well, that was really full of hubris and arrogance and playing God with the child after mm-hmm. a mistake. And ultimately, when he was a 38, he shot himself and he died by suicide. Mm-hmm. David Raymer did. And uh, his brother has reported darkly on, you know, the the sessions that he had with John Money. And, you know, there's there's all sorts of he said, she said about the whole thing. So we can never be sure what happened, but we can be very sure that this was an absolutely awful incident. And it was hailed as a success for 30 years after this, this extraordinarily arrogant um, operation, which happened around about, I'd say, 1967 or 1965 or something. Um, he was born in 1965, so quite soon after this Dave Paper mm-hmm. would have, you know, John Money would have intervened and said, let's raise this child as a girl. And it was a disaster. And for 30 years, that's right up until 1995, yeah. this was a great success and mm-hmm. showing how we could do this type of thing. Mm-hmm. We, great, godlike psychiatrists, doctors. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. it's a real, I have a real problem with that kind of on high of our industry. And this mm-hmm. was a real example of it. And then finally, you know, when he died, when he was 38, it's, it's kind of quite obvious. Not only was it not a success, it was an absolute disaster.
1: Yeah, yeah. And to to think about the kind of veneer of success that sometimes accompanies these, again, like exotic and special cases. It's interesting. There was a survey in 1965 um, that showed only 3% of surgeons would actually take sex change requests seriously by their patients. But by the 70s, these surgeries had become really commonplace. And you, you brought up this interesting statistic um, that, that in 1981, you know, about a decade after these surgeries had become yeah. very common, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services determined that sex reassignment surgery was experimental and shouldn't be covered. Yeah. By by Medicare and Medicaid, so that seems important. I mean, in the I looked at the HS, HHS uh, documentation, and they said, you know, because of the lack of well-controlled long-term studies of the safety and effectiveness of surgical procedures and the attendant therapies for transsexualism, it's considered experimental, and due to the high rate of serious complications, these surgeries will not be covered. And
0: so just to bring it back a bit, because that was 1981 and at that stage, yeah, it was very experimental and there was some very famous cases that were roaring successes. And then there was a lot of less famous cases that were a lot more problematic. Harry Benjamin seemed to be the centre of it. He wrote the transsexual phenomenon in the 60s and there was a big, you know, that that really did feel like the centre of the movement. And he he was a very charismatic, interesting figure, as far as I can see, and really promoted He, being an endocrinologist, promoted transsexualism and ultimately founded the Harry Benjamin International Gender Dysphoria Association. So that people with gender dysphoria could be kind of given the route to um, cross-sex surgery. And he he wrote that. And then there's also Robert Stoller, who would be the kind of third high king. Of the gender movement in the 60s and and this era we're talking about. We're kind of talking about the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where yeah. there was kind of a uh a push from these uh three primarily and others to kind of um to transition and to promote the path of transition. And you know, maybe had it continued that direction, maybe there would have been more exploration and maybe it could have gone somewhere. But the they did deem it experimental. They went too fast, too soon. And a lot of these surgeries didn't go very well. Mm-hmm. As far as I can see, it's Robert Stoller who seemed to have coined this actual term
1: gender identity. Right. So you're you're saying that they pushed for experimental interventions too soon without really having the long term data and also to me it seems there was a a huge lack of conscientiousness about what the the dangers of these interventions were
0: and there was an extraordinary lack of psychological curiosity about what might be underlying anybody's desire to transition and there was a dismissive attitude to that and it was more but can we do it as opposed to why would we want to do it Mm -hmm. And should we do it? And mm-hmm. it was more like, can we do it? And will we do it? Was was where the questions they were, they were kind of dwelling on. And I, I really think that as a result, they 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 shaped a lot of of the concept behind, and a lot of people call it true trans, where they really believe that there's certain people who have some sort of identity dust within them. They have some sort of soul of the trans person. And this trans person needs to be helped to transition as soon as possible. Why this trans person exists, nobody knows. And is there any biological evidence that they exist? Nobody has found it. But they believe a concept of there's this small number of people who are truly trans and mm-hmm. they transition. And that concept is still very, very common today, to right to now. And I just think, but anybody who knows anything about psychology would say, but why? Where where are they coming from? What's driving them? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, I think it's it gets a bit tricky because I think the concept of affirmation, which we're going to get to a little bit later, comes from the idea that if there's a born this way, sexual orientation then perhaps there's a born this way transsexual identity or transgender identity or however you know that the language evolves so i think that may be some of the more let's say generous interpretation of why we have this belief of true trans and on the other hand there doesn't seem to be a theoretical foundation strong enough to justify these kinds of interventions.
0: Well, I think a lot of these um, born this way, true trans, often talk about how, and they were told as well to to say it in the clinics, and it's, it's well, well documented right. yes. that they were to have a script and they were to very much push the point of say that i was born this way say the words and you will get your you will get your yes so there was a lot of gatekeeping back then but there was a very much a kind of a grapevine among trans people to know what to say so that you could get by the grapevine or you could get by the gatekeeping so so that existed whether it was good or bad it seems quite messy but then in 1981 as you said there was a kind of a push against it saying this was experimental And it kind of seemed to kind of reduce because a lot of clinics were closed over the next, certainly over the next 20 years in America. And there was less, as you said, the insurance were were less inclined to cover it. And Harry Benjamin started his organisation in 1979. And, you know, that's the Harry Benjamin International Gender Dysphoria Association. And that continued as a kind of a loose affiliation of trans people, of medics, of professionals who were there to support and help people to transition and they ultimately became WPATH in 2007 and they released, um, I think it's 78 actually they first formed and they released their first standards of care in 1979 and those standards of care get revised every so often and we're now working off literally their seventh standards of care and we're looking forward to their new standards of care coming out next year. Um, Yeah, but they're very much a loose affiliation of people who are interested in the subject. And they created the standards of care and off it rolled along. And until the 2000s, there was still just a small cohort of people, people like Zucker, people like De Vries over in in Holland, who were working away with gender dysphoric children. And it wasn't really, I would say, until the noughties, until the 2010s, that suddenly there was a big upsurge. Again, very much based on this concept of there was a true trans and they need to be helped to transition. And that was where the affirmative kind of have rolled on. So mm-hmm. we'll a little bit about what Zucker has been doing yeah. since really the 80s. He's, he How many papers has he
1: written? Since the 70s, he's been working. I think last time I, I was listening to Dr. Zucker in an interview, he said he'd published 130 peer-reviewed publications. He is a true pioneer and um, incredibly experienced in data collection and research on childhood gender issues. So let's talk a little bit about his approach. Um, as I was, again, he's published so much, but as I was looking at um, his works that describe his process and his his way of, of intervening, he became aware of several important things that seemed quite different from um, the types of interventions we've just described. So, Dr. Zucker performs very extensive assessments, which include psychological testing and parental report questionnaires. So, he's talking with both the child and the parents. And it seems that, you know, Dr. Zucker believes perhaps that gender identity is alterable. Based on things like biology, psychosocial elements, um, social cognition, learning and other psychopathology that might be happening within a child. So I think he views gender identity as being much more malleable than some other theorists.
0: And I think that's why a lot of people take issue with his work, because they decided that he was, again, always based on gender roles. He was almost luring stroke, encouraging stroke, pushing children to become more gender conforming. And people these days in the eyes of 2020 are thinking, well, why couldn't the boy wear the fairy dress? Why couldn't the girl jump around and in dungarees and climb trees? And it feels very regressive in our eyes. Back then, all, all study on transgenderism, all study on gender dysphoria is all based on gender roles.
1: Mm -hmm. well in a paper that i read dr zucker you know reports that he would also coach parents not to be forceful about things like clothing and aesthetics so i'm guessing that over his very long career his methods have probably evolved and changed and adapted um but i do think that you know the focus was Accepting the body. There might have been periods where he pushed gender conformity more than other periods, but it seemed like he used kind of naturalistic interventions, which is what he called them, like play therapy and open ended kind of interventions, to help a child come to terms with their body. And maybe at points wasn't so concerned about whether they were highly conforming in the way they present.
0: I think you're right. And he was quite clearly very open to the idea that many of his clients would one day uh, transition. And he was perfectly happy to see any successful outcome. He didn't really mind how the outcome was successful. He wished Mm -hmm. for successful outcomes, which was good psychological functioning, seemed to be Mm -hmm. his kind of measure. And certainly I, I did like you know, some of his papers, they were very, very open to what is a successful outcome. And, you know, mm-hmm. he looked at different people's successful outcomes and basically he had a very, very broad mind to mm-hmm. what is and what isn't a successful outcome. It's very, very hard for anybody yeah. who's looking at the papers and you think, okay, well, if this person is injecting heroin every day and if they're a prostitute, is that a successful outcome or is it not? If they say they're happy. And like, I don't know yeah. what to say to that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't so, know what to say because I think who knows what they'd be without transitioning? Who knows where they'd be? Yeah, yeah. We, we don't know.
1: And so we, we, all we can do is tread carefully in all of the studies and all of the you know methodologies there's never controls there's there's very rarely controls about how would a gender dysphoric person fare if they had other types of support and not the medical intervention piece so it's really hard to know and you know Dr. Zucker really acknowledged the the material reality that being trans and having all these interventions and surgeries, is it's difficult. So rather than thinking only about this kind of abstracted theoretical idea of internally, are you truly trans or not? He also took into account the material reality that these transition procedures have an impact and they're not necessarily easy. So I think it's become, these days, it's almost become Uh, impossible to say the truth that it may be objectively better to help a person come to terms with their biology than to send them down this medical path. And I see Dr. Zucker's approach grounded in an acknowledgement of that fact.
0: And it's acknowledging the heavy medical burden that comes with transitioning. And yes. n- nothing more than that. This isn't to do with philosophy or anything else. It's a heavy medical burden that if you can avoid, you would be better. I know Juno Dawson, who's very pro-affirmative care and is a trans person. And in her book, she says, if you can avoid transitioning, don't transition for the very same reason that it carries a very, head- a very heavy medical burden. So as Zucker was carrying out his work and he was doing it you know, extensively in Canada um, with-, with Susan Bradley, in fairness, Bradley mm-hmm. was yes. very much a pioneer with them. The Dutch were creating their own kind of world.
1: Yes. And
0: they a huge amount of what we now look at as standard procedure is based on two big studies that came from Amsterdam. One in 2011 was published in 2011. The other was stud, published in 2014. So go, Sasha. Tell me what
1: <laughs> Well, while you say big, I want to say I want to kind of uh, qualify that with big insofar as they've created a bit of a splash, right? Not big in terms of their, their sample size, very small sample size. But like you said, we have derived all of the most kind of commonly used current interventions based on these two studies. So We'll talk about the 2012 study, which looked at a cohort of 70 patients, 7-0, aged 11 to 17, who were studied um, in the early 2000s. And they had puberty suppression followed by cross-sex hormones. So they were assessed twice in this study, one time right before the puberty suppression, and then one time right before cross-sex hormones. So on average, they were on hormones for two years, or sorry, hormone blockers for two years for puberty blockers. And um, again, there was no control. So we do not know what would have happened to young people in a similar situation who are given other types of interventions, but not the puberty blockers. We don't know that. But based on youth and parent report, there seemed to be um, an improvement of depression symptoms their anxiety and anger were stable and they used also a body image scale so there seemed to be um, an improvement in body image but there was no amelioration of the gender dysphoria So in the study discussion, they say, you know, we did not expect there to be a reduction in gender dysphoria. We just expected an improvement in overall functioning, which, again, very short follow-up, but they did find a general improvement in functioning. Interestingly, also, 62 out of the 70 kids studied were same-sex attracted.
0: And key part of this study is that all of the children who took puberty blockers, they were between the ages of 12 and 16 in this study, all 70, continued on to cross-sex hormones. And that began the theory of people like myself and anybody who's interested in psychology to, well, what is the psychological impact of puberty blockers if all of them continued on? Now, the argument the Dutch would make and many other people would make was they were very well chosen, and they were this cohort of true trans. They were this cohort who were always going to transition and they could have not transitioned until they were 60 or they could have transitioned at six. They were always going to transition. Somebody like myself who's always interested in our in our inner motivations um, would be thinking, well, how do we know? How do we know? Because we don't have a control group, so we do not know. And who's to know? Who are these amazing geniuses who can pick these two <laughs> trans kids, because I, I I know there's an awful lot of concentration about the phrase insistent, persistent, and consistent, and this is considered the way to figure out whether a child is truly trans or not, and should take all all sorts of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, is that if they are consistent, insistent, and persistent, then they um, are showing a sign of of always having this gender dysphoria and therefore they should be better off transitioning. And I would argue anybody who looks at those three words would say, yeah, they're personality traits. And some people are not, some people are gentle. Some people are very inconsistent in their personality and that has nothing to do with their gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. And I just say that as myself, I, I did have my intense experience of gender issues as a kid, by God, I was insistent, persistent and consistent for over seven years. And I
1: there was not a chink in my armor. There was I was so intense. I just want to just point out seven years. Whereas today, Stella, if you were taken to a psychiatrist, you would have needed those symptoms for six months. I know. Before a doctor could look your mother in the eye and say, I'm confident that your daughter is a boy. But you had these symptoms for seven years. So continue. I just want to point out that incredible distinction. You're right.
0: And I still remember the day I looked up the criteria and I saw six months, six months. And when you look at the criteria, just to digress, the the, the criteria from the DSM, you know, five out of the eight criteria are based on gender, old fashioned, stereotypical roles like liking. You know, like the opposite sex toys, liking the opposite sex to play with, like, you know, really ba- fairly basic things about clothes and toys and things like that. Yeah. So where was it? Yeah. So that 2011 study was pivotal because suddenly people thought, oh, we should give these children puberty blockers. And then they will be able to transition easier because that means they won't have the big hands and they won't have gone into puberty. And so they won't ever have the kind of physical attributes of the sex that they don't want to be. They will able to be easier to become the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the boys who were born boys w- wouldn't become big and broad and angular. And instead they would remain prepubescent, stay on the blockers and then one day cross over as soon as they could
1: it was an extraordinary concept absolutely i mean that's very much taking development into the hands of medicine and for the first time i mean i'm not aware of any other condition which we just stop development in order to prevent psychological distress physical development that's quite extraordinary. And, and there's so much that I would love to say about the psychological questions that come up for me here. I imagine we're going to be devoting entire episodes to puberty blocking. But in terms of the study, what what's remarkable to me is that it is very well documented that there's such a thing as the placebo effect. And if you think about the plight of a young person who's distressed, And the parents are distressed, right? So by definition, these are parents who think this is a problem. These are not parents that are like, oh, you know, just let them grow out of it. It'll be fine. These are parents who are distressed as well. And all of a sudden, you have an entire team of lab coat researchers and professionals and weekly psychological meetings. And don't worry, we're going to get you this medication. And all of a sudden, you are under the intense watch and care of a, a huge group of professionals. And I'm very curious about whether or not in and of itself that is an intervention that might be alleviating some distress for these young people.
0: And even at that, their gender dysphoria didn't alleviate. <laughs> and even at that, it was a year after they, the, no, the gender dysphoria hadn't um, alleviated, but other psychological functioning had Mm -hmm. Uh, improved and therefore it was deemed a success and therefore the entire concept of puberty blockers arrived to London to New York to Los Angeles and to everywhere else for children who were gender dysphoric and since then
1: they did another study in 2014 yes I was gonna say but wait there's more (laughs) why Uh stop at puberty blockers let's go on so go on tell us about the 2014 one So a 2014 study looked at um, a smaller cohort of young people, 55 in total. 22 of them were male to female, and 33 were female to male. And these uh, patients were assessed three times, one time before puberty suppression, one time uh, presumably after puberty suppression when cross-sex hormones were introduced, which is around the age of 16 or 17, and then one time one year after surgery. So this study also looked at cross-sex hormone interventions and surgery. And just to clarify what that means, in this case, vaginoplasty was performed on the male-to-female patients. And the female-to-male patients had mastectomies, which is breast removal, hysterectomies, and had their ovaries removed, ovariectomies. So the, you know, I'm very open to... What are the real outcomes of these studies? And as as I was looking at the details here, it didn't really look very good. They describe uh, an improvement in overall functioning after um, the gender reassignment surgery. This is what the study concludes. Yet I was quite alarmed to discover that one male to female patient actually died due to a complication with the vaginoplasty and necrotizing fasciitis, which is a bacterial infection that spreads quickly. So crunching the numbers, 4.5% of males in this study died because of the intervention.
0: What I found shocking when I found that out was that these two studies, the 2011 or 2012, depending on your context, and the 2014 study, which is the one we're talking about here, are considered great successes. And I I didn't know somebody had died, a child had died in in this study. And I I was surprised I didn't know because I've been reading about these studies for many years. And I know how much of our current treatment programs are based upon these two apparently roaring successfully, roaringly successful studies. Mm -hmm. And and somebody dying isn't a roaring success. it's, It's a tragedy. And it, it, it needs a massive amount of attention and review and consideration. And I would ar- argue uh, a reanalysis of where we are going with this. But what I do think has more than anything, once puberty blockers came into the came into the kind of toolbox of gender clinicians, it came in at in and around the same time as affirmative care was coming in as a concept for gender clinicians. And when you look at the concept of affirmative care, I think it's quite easy to realise that this was a conflation between uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual people and people with gender issues. And so, you know, if you look uh, up until the, you know, in the 80s was, you know, gay lesbian rights, the gay liberation movement. There was lots of different movements and it was certainly nothing to do with um, gender. It wasn't really considered part of the moniker. And I know in, two, in 1993 the the trans, what did they call themselves? They had some very funny name, the trans something or other. They uh, joined the uh, a, a gay lesbian march in, in New York. And there was, you know, there was a bit of a kickoff around that. And they were trying to basically infiltrate and they did. And, you know, some people were absolutely delighted to have trans people as part of the LGBT, because that's what it became known, movement. I do think it messed up our clarity around treatment approaches, because really there's no need to be treating gay and lesbian people. Sadly... For hundreds and thousands of years, people were ostracized as gay and lesbian and they were given medical treatment. And therefore, there's a concept called conversion therapy. And therefore, there's a concept called affirmative therapy. And so that um, affirmative therapy for gay and lesbian people is is, is a really appropriate thing where if somebody comes to me and they're gay and they're 24 years old and they're freaking out being gay, I help them accept themselves. And that's what I should do. And if I was to try and convert them into being heterosexual, that would be conversional therapy. And it has a disgustingly horrible past where people were given electric shock therapy and awful, awful, awful things. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in the 90s and 2000s, gay, lesbian, bisexual became conflated with trans and it all became affirmative. So if somebody said to me, I want to be a woman, it was considered the very same thing as I think I'm gay. And That's right. You had to approach it in the very same way. The treatment of I want to be a woman is take drugs until the day you die and it will carry a very heavy, heavy medical burden. The treatment for somebody who is gay is live your life. Do what you want. Fall in love with whoever you want to. So it seems starkly different and has been conflated and is now called affirmative care. You know, trans-affirmative, gay-affirmative, doesn't matter what, it's affirmative care. And they've risen, the big three that I think of would be Norman Spack, and uh, he's an endocrinologist, again, just like Harry Benjamin, Diane Aaron Saft, who is a psychologist, and Joanna, Johanna Olson-Kennedy, the physician. So what do you know about them, Sasha?
1: Well, I know, I know. Am I right in thinking they're the three main affirmative I think they're the, the main kind of new generation. Yeah. They, they really seem to be leading the way in terms of like educational campaigns and research and very much true b- believers.
0: And there is Jack Tur- Turbin as well, but um, he's not a clinician as far as I can gather.
1: No, but he is certainly spreading the the good word of gender, isn't he? In the public consciousness. I mean, I, I want to just, before we get into these three affirmative um professionals here. I do want to just point out that there's the conflation of sexual orientation and gender. And also, the really big problem here is that anybody worth their salt who knows anything about sexual orientation will tell you that when you speak with most adults who are happily gay or lesbian or bisexual, they experienced some gender nonconformity, gender incongruence, Issues around identity as they were developing and solidifying their orientation. So not only is there a conflation, but we can accidentally capture would-be happy gay adults, lesbian adults, bisexual adults, under the gender umbrella and lead them down a medical path that is completely unnecessary if we had given them time to develop
0: What was the percentage you said of the first study, the Dutch, you said something like 70% or something were were gay or same-sex attracted or something? 62 out of 70. Yeah, yeah. This is a huge mess between what is gay, lesbian, bisexual, what is gender, how does it merge, what is the concept of pre-gay, what is the concept of pre-lesbian, how should that be nurtured without sexualizing somebody, how is that gender non-conforming or is this something to do with the true trans and you know it, it, it opens everything up. There is as we anybody who's been following our episodes will know there's a new cohort, there's a new cohort of teenagers who now who, who, who never really were in the history before. They, they didn't really exist. Every, up until really quite recently, all the studies where children who'd started, like I did, at two or three, saying, I'm a boy, I'm a girl, and they didn't deviate. So all the Dutch studies are completely based upon children who had a consistent, insistent and persistent gender identity that was not the same as their biological sex. And then... Um, All the new cohort of these adolescents who've come in um, are saying that they are they need the same treatment as those from the Dutch approach. And yet that doesn't work out because just recently the, the Dutch have come out and said they weren't we weren't acknowledging this new cohort of teenagers. And so they suddenly have got again thrown into the pot without perhaps due diligence that this is a new group that have never, never existed in the literature before. That's right. These are the group, I would argue, are perhaps the most vulnerable. But they're not the only group the the affirmative care uh, clinicians work on. They work at children. I know Diana Aronsaft can see a child who's trans when they're one and two. She can see that their communication is apparently a trans
1: communication. Gendered communication, she would say. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm just aware that there is a crystal ball effect That we have lifted up several times in our conversation that the the professionals who insist in affirming and transitioning children all seem to have some magical power to predict the future and the kind of bizarre twist is that in today's um, i guess version of gender affirmation there's also a caveat for gender fluidity so I'm not really sure how you square that with medically transitioning a child. However, I've heard Dr. Aaron Saft say in a paper that perhaps this young non binary person just wants a touch of testosterone. So we are now talking of almost about microdosing medical intervention to appear to be some ambiguous gender. But before we get into the weeds, let's just kind of break down. (laughs) I I could easily end up in the weeds, but let's just break down. What does it seem the kind of unifying philosophy is of the gender affirmative people like Dr. Aaron Saft, Joanna Olson Kennedy, Dr. Speck? What do you think is the, because I have a hard time even beginning to explain what they believe
0: I think the concept is very child-centered and what the child says is. Yes. And you, you, again, a lack of psychological curiosity. So you don't try to kind of interpret what the child might mean. Instead, you take exactly what the child says at face value. And so if the child says, which is very common at the age of two and three and four, because they are very interested in gender roles, children around that age are naturally developmentally interested in gender roles and they can declare that they're a boy or a girl and they can become very gender rigid as well, like girls are making cakes and boys are digging in the, the mud. And um, according to affirmative care, you go with whatever the child says. So if they say that they're a boy one day, then they are a boy. And if another day they decide that they're genderqueer, they're genderqueer or pan gender or whatever, one of the ones. it You don't question, you fall in with. That is, the, to me, the basis of
1: affirmative care. You know, I, I've seen that angle. And yet I've seen something which feels even more absurd to me, which is that all behavior is gendered communication. And sometimes... Even against the child's claims, these affirmative doctors will insist that the child is trans. So there's there's a famous clip now that kind of went viral, at least within the kind of community of people who are curious about childhood transition where Dr. Joanna Olson Kennedy, who is, uh, she's a medical doctor, but she's really leading the charge with earlier and earlier childhood interventions. She has recommended mastectomy for 13 year old girls and is continuing to push the envelope for younger interventions. And there's a, a clip where she's discussing at a conference, you know, how to talk with young people about their gender. And one young girl, female child, comes to her with the mom and says, well, you know, and Dr. Kennedy asks her, well, how do you, are you a boy or a girl? She said, well, I'm a girl because I have this body. And Olson Kennedy says to her, well, have you ever had Pop-Tarts? She says, yeah. Okay, so let's say you have a box of Pop-Tarts and the box says strawberry and you open it up and you pull out the pop tart and it's a cinnamon pop tart is that pop tart a strawberry pop tart she said well no it's a cinnamon pop tart and she said then the a light bulb went off and the girl went oh so really i'm a boy but my outer my outer shell happens to be a female one but it's mislabeled just like that cinnamon pop tart Now, I could be getting the flavors wrong. It might have been cherry and apple, or I don't know. But the point is absolutely important for us to just sit with for a minute, especially since we're interested in the psychological elements here. You have a doctor telling a child that their body isn't really real, and that on the inside, she's really a different gender And then her outer packaging is just mislabeled.
0: Uh, And this was where this extraordinary alluring but inappropriate phrase, born in the wrong body, kind of grew wings and flew. And so everywhere you went a few years ago, people were saying, oh, they're just born in the wrong body. So that's why they have to transition. And having had my own experience, this before I entered anything to do with gender, every time somebody would say that, I'd go, sorry? What? Now I worked as a psychotherapist, so just everything within me was like, "What's this? Born in the wrong body? How can you be born in the wrong body? We're all born in the wrong body." Have you seen my body? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I really had took huge issue with that phrase because for a child to hear that, it's so alluring to hear, "Oh, oh, that's what's wrong with me. That's what explains my 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 you know dysphoria or." my non-conforming ways. And then recently they've decided they've rode back on that phrase, thankfully, and realised that it's an inappropriate phrase. And now the NHS in England, for example, they don't use that anymore. The Department of Education in England no longer um, see it as an appropriate phrase. And the Tavistock are no longer using that phrase born in the wrong body because they realise it was inappropriate. But it was from concepts such as that. And Johanna Candy is also, there's another clip where she says, you know, and if you do have a mastectomy, for as young as thirteen, sure you can get new breasts in the future. So there's a flippancy I feel that doesn't actually give, doesn't actually centre the 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 importance of the person in front of you. That when you have a mastectomy, it's a major event, and you don't wave it away with "you can get new breasts." You you, you it's too big an event to be waved away. And similarly, Diane Aronsaf does seem to have a flippancy in her kind of interpretation. Of, of gendered communication when she says things like a child opening the buttons of their onesie and making it into an apparent dress is gendered communication. And that's that's apparently a, a boy who wants to be a girl or a girl who rips off. I know you call them barrettes. We call them clips, hair clips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's also apparently gendered communication. When you when you look at these are the, the pioneers of the affirmative care, you think it doesn't feel very deep. It doesn't feel very well thought out. It feels really quite surface. And then with Norman Spack, and again, very interested in what they can do surgically. And he said, I was salivating when I first heard of the concept of, you know, children with puberty blockers, because it was so exciting to somebody who's working in the industry to be able to do something so new and innovative.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a, a sense that you know being on the forefront of a novel kind of intervention can be an inflating experience for a physician in terms of psychological inflation. You get to put your stamp on something new. You're going to have uh, the press reaching out to you all the time to talk about this exotic, fascinating transgender child. And I think there's a very slippery slope towards a hubristic and callous attitude about your own patients. And it's really interesting because it's under the veneer of being this very progressive physician who's standing up for transgender rights and transgender children. And yet, as we explored in the episode today, there doesn't seem to be any indication that intervening early and intervening with such force is going to be beneficial for these children in the long term. And furthermore, the theoretical foundations for all of this seem out there. They seem metaphysical in the worst sense of the word. And it's quite scary, in my opinion. I mean, we're really just putting it out there today, and. I, I would love to be able to, to speak in a very balanced manner about this, but these are incredibly serious interventions being performed on children with really no, no basis that makes me have any confidence in them.
0: Yeah, I, I'm very uninterested in, in a follow up. The 2014 study that has a follow up of one year after cross-sex hormones. Yeah, it's too early. I'm not interested. Show me what they were like after five years and show me what they were like after 10 years, because now we've got real data that we can actually use. And so one year. Yeah, great. I'm I'm glad for them. But I just don't think it's actually massively influencing or shouldn't be to our therapeutic um treatments and then we are as you said we're you know we're recording this in December 2020 and the Tavistock have just released their data this is a, a study since as far as I know 2011 is it that they started it long 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 time ago they started it but they only released the data um a few days ago and they followed 44 patients and all but one continued on to cross-sex hormones again suggesting that if you take puberty blockers yes you will go on to cross sex hormones it does feel like the first step of medical transition but not only that their their experiences was was quite inconclusive about whether there was much there was no changes in psychological functioning and it really it didn't feel that it was we don't know whether it was positive or not there was no control group was it good was it bad the fact is people's emotions tend to slope during adolescence and so they were their adolescence was halted blocked with medical means and so they wouldn't have had the kind of difficulties the surges in hormones that other adolescents had so their psychological um functioning didn't disimprove do we know why was it because the, their adolescence was halted no we don't know why we do. We don't
1: have a it didn't improve either and
0: presumably
1: no. they they started off distressed or else they wouldn't be pursuing intervention. So it didn't improve either. So we just see kind of a stagnant, to call it stagnant is even a little bit generous because you are halting the development of a young person. And right, the the results from that study didn't really provide any strong evidence that this is a, a good idea. It really feels to me like these interventions shouldn't be the first line of defense, that's for sure.
0: They feel very experimental. And they remind me of where they came from because they were rooted in the concept of true trans. And it reminds me of people playing God with children who are vulnerable. And it does have that feel of it. But I do think there is a new kind of cohort of maybe psychologists and psychotherapists who are interested in more of an exploratory model and maybe remembering our teaching and remembering our training and thinking of Winnicott and maybe the true self and the false self. And often the false self is created as a kind of a protection from the inner, vulnerable true self. And uh, that, that's to kind of push back a little bit on this whole concept of true self, because very often, if you do create a false self, it is a protection for yourself and you do feel giddy. And you do feel quite loud and bright and bubbly because you've got this false self. But it it does create a feeling of disconnectedness. And I do think if we look at actually the psychology, we might get to better outcomes in the long term where people might maybe perhaps think I can work with the body I have and I don't need to fall into gender roles and I reject gender roles and boys can wear pink dresses. And girls can run around and wear their do whatever they want.
1: Mm -hmm. So, we're talking about a new way to imagine working with gender dysphoric people that is neither pushing conformity nor pushing an alteration of the body, like a completely different way. And I know for me that that is um, a, a model that I've work with my patients on and I imagine we'll dedicate an entire episode to what are the interesting psychological ways to think about these gender distresses um, how do you feel we've done today? We've covered, it feels like a lot of ground. A
0: lot, a lot. <laughs> I do want to note that a lot of the people who have detransitioned, and we will cover that in the future, they seem to reject gender. They don't care. Yeah. I've got a male voice, I've got hair on my in my jaw, but I'm a woman and I don't care. And I just, they're so brave and like, yep, that's yes. me, get over it world.
1: is yes, for sure.
0: Yeah. So there might be a freer day ahead where people can Women can be hairy and big and broad and low-voiced. And men can be squeaky and dainty.
1: <laughs> or individuals who are feeling distressed about their body might, might understand or might be curious that there's something else going on. And maybe it's not always about gender to begin with. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long term care for gender variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more.
0: If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash pod.
1: Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.